the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, folks, welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Oh, we're so glad when you join us. And so is Pete Paquette. He's the engineer. Andrew Herdliska produces the show all right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Well, to start the show, we head to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We found Travis Thompson there, author of To Those Left Behind, helping partners and families understand and heal from addiction. Travis, welcome to Orlando. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great this morning. I'm happy to be here. To those left behind, what's the background of this book? Well, it's from my experience as a therapist in both residential treatment facilities for addiction as well as my personal uh, work in my private practice. And it comes from when the partners and families send off their loved ones to get treatment but they often don't get much information themselves. And I've had so many families and partners tell me that they felt left behind in the entire process of addiction recovery. And they get left behind not only in the treatment, but even afterwards wondering just what happened to them and what they can even do to help. Well, I want to dive in and have you talk about our first chapter, Therapy from Bob Newhart. And I love Bob Newhart. What's going on here? Sure. So uh, this is my first book, and I thought I might as well have some fun with some chapters. Uh, There's a great uh, Mad TV skit with Bob Newhart where he's a uh, psychologist. And they come in, and there's a lady that comes in, and he just yells at her to stop it every time she's anxious. And so uh, this chapter is about all the different ways that we've tried to help addiction over time. And that's quite honestly where it started was just, you know, stop it. Stop drinking. Stop doing all these things. But in here, we learn about the different ways that treatment has um, been implemented, whether that's through the medical system, whether it's through spiritual systems or groups or different ideologies. It gives everyone a background of how we got here, as well as the usefulness of systemic and attachment theory that I use in showing why this is not only just the next step, but it's the complete revolution in how we deal with addiction itself. Now, I want you to get to the second part of your book, Telling the Kitten Goodnight. Explain (laughs) explain that one. Sure. So uh, that actually comes from uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, He struggled with uh, alcoholism and significant mental health issues. And 
so that was the last thing that anybody remembers um, is Ernest Hemingway telling his wife, uh, goodnight, my kitten. And this chapter is specifically about the ways that mental health is affected in addiction. So I'm a therapist, I'm working on my doctorate, and I've seen different ways that addiction and mental health interact with each other in some ways that we've overdone our understanding of mental health issues, that we've pathologized part of just the normal human experience. And so if you're able to read through that chapter, you will definitely understand how the two interact and what you can do with it. Under his eye, topic three, explain that one to us. <laughs> sure. So that comes actually from a TV show I love called The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and it's, it's sort of like a surveillance thing. And it's this constant experience of trauma and not being able to be safe. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about the trauma that impacts from addiction, not only in the addict or the alcoholic themselves, but especially for the family members, because they experience great trauma sitting through and watching all of this and wondering if they can even help or not. So it's giving voice and giving light to all of the aspects of trauma for everyone involved. Now, thanks, Nancy. <clears throat> Who's Nancy? <laughs> so that one actually comes from uh, the uh, Nancy Reagan's effort in, you know, in her husband's war against drugs and how everything else followed through. And it was the just say no, right? It was, well, you know, if you're offered drugs, just say no. And, you know, it gets a little bit into the legal side of all of this. But it talks about the way that addiction has been criminalized and penalized, even if the damage is just to the person themselves and seeing what we can do with the legal system and not just some pie-in-the-sky idea, but also the practical ways that even people can advocate and understand for how the criminal justice system has played into the epidemic of addiction that we see today. Uh, I, th I think this is a good time to ask this question. How do people get addicted, Travis? What, what, what happens in their life? Sure. Um, so this, you'll see this sporadically throughout the entire book. But I do not believe that addiction is a disease. Um, that's the primary mode that we see it today. Um, I've never heard anyone that could talk themselves out of a disease before. And so from that framework, I started to get curious, okay, so how does this develop? And there's a few things that I've really started to see. One, those that have experienced trauma are more likely to be addicts. That's not a necessary requirement. The biggest two things that I see are in families where there's unhealthy dynamic patterns. I call them triangles in the book. And you start to understand how these patterns start to breed the propensity for addiction. The other thing that really plays into it is this lack of safety and inability to sit in silence and truly understand who we are, where we're coming from, and how things affect us. And so we, in an effort to try to push away from that silence, we lean into these unhealthy relationships and instead of people, over time, it starts to become a relationship with the substance itself. Let's get back to uh, the book Per Jimmy Duggan. Or Dugan. <laughs> Dugan. That, that, that's topic number five. Travis Thompson, yeah. our guest. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so uh, actually comes from a really famous baseball movie. Uh, and there's a little line in there that I remember growing up. Um, and it was, there's no crying in baseball. 
comes from Jimmy Dugan himself in that movie. Um, and what that is was kind of my experience growing up in a family system and learning what it meant to be a man. And so this chapter specifically is how families can both breed addiction, but they can also help heal from it. So the cool thing about this is it borrows from all of the systemic psychological theories that we know. And if you read it, you can see yourself in here, even with no addiction present. And you really get the sense of how addiction isn't special. It's just some problem with an extreme. And so for this specifically, it's how we got there and our family system and what our families can do to make a difference. My guest is Travis Thompson up in Tennessee, talking about his book, To Those Left Behind, Helping Partners and Families Understand and Heal from Addiction. Uh, I want you to explain this topic. X and Y track four. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so uh, that actually comes from a, a Coldplay album. Um, and the track there is Fix You. And it, it's a notorious song that's supposed to be a love song. But man, as a therapist, that song just really ruined for me. And so this chapter is actually about codependency and unhealthy relationships. And it helps us understand the way that we become in a relationship with our addiction, but the way that our addiction actually balances and mitigates unhealthy relationships. And it helps us understand how we can be married or in a relationship with someone for 10 years and hate their addiction, but stay with them. And so it helps us understand those boundaries and those new ways of interacting. Next topic for you. And three quarters, it matters. <laughs> that comes from my wife. Um, if you say that she is five foot two inches, she will correct you and say, and three quarters, it matters. <laughs> so for me, this is the chapter on marriage in the way that we see those intimate relationships play out. I talk about addiction as infidelity, as an emotional affair. And so this topic is specifically for the spouses that have sat and gotten married and have made a lifelong commitment but are in a relationship with someone who is absent. And so for this, it is about the ways that a partner can understand themselves and their role in addiction and the ways that they can move forward in a healthy way to support their spouse. And now, uh, growing the Skylark's feathers back. Explain. So this comes, yeah, so this comes from um, an ancient Jewish uh, parable talking about how addicts themselves, in the, in the story of the Skylark, that they sell their feathers for worms. And over time, at some point, the Skylark tries to fly again, but realizes that it has fallen to the ground because all of its feathers are gone. And so for this chapter, it's about the some of the philosophical, but mostly the practical ways that anyone who has seen addiction in their lives or in someone they care about's lives, the practical ways that they can make a difference, the things that they can do to not only help themselves, but to push healing in a way that they didn't think was possible. And now, welcome to the Thunderdome. So this came from a client that I had when I worked in residential treatment where 
Um, he would come in, and every day he felt like he was being challenged. And so he got me a sign after he left that said, Welcome to the Thunderdome. This is my catch-all chapter as the chapter of like little bits of wisdom that I have gained over the years and clients have found incredibly helpful. And so if you're looking for something that can help you understand addiction, things that can help you understand the way that it works and the way that we process it and find healing, this is my catch-all chapter, kind of like, you know, my little Aesop staples, if it were fit into this one little section. My guest is Travis Thompson, the book author of To Those Left Behind, Helping Partners and Families Understand and Heal from Addiction. We have another segment with Travis. Stay with us. We'll be right back. But I want to remind you, we're working hard trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. We need to hear from you. Uh, Tell us what you think. Uh, Tell us if you're interested in season tickets one day if this all works out. But uh, above all, we need to show baseball there's great interest here. OrlandoDreamers.com. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. More with Travis Thompson right after this. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. So, uh, Travis, there's a conclusion to your book. Uh, let's get that out of the way, and then uh, then we'll move on from there. So how do, you, how do you conclude this book you've written? So I've realized in the middle of writing all of this book that there's a lot of information that is super helpful, but it can feel a little bit overwhelming. So instead of the conclusion just being a summary, I have written short-form letters to anybody who is reading this, whether it's the uh, partner of an addict, a family member, even the child of someone in addiction, or just a loved one in general, it's what I wish I could say to all of those people if I could meet them in person. Take us inside a counseling session, Travis. Uh, how did how did the addict get there in the first place? Uh, how do you open up a, 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 a counseling session, particularly if the guy or this lady doesn't want to be there? <laughs> well, unfortunately, Pat, that's a good segment of the people that come in. Um, typically, people come in because someone else has said that they're about done with the relationship. And so people come and see me desperate to try to keep everything together. There are a few things that I definitely lean into. One is if you're coming and talking to me about addiction, things have been going wrong for a while. So we're not going to dance around things. We're going to be upfront and honest and engaged. When people come to me, it's very straightforward. It is very loving and compassionate, but I don't mince words because People are usually at the end of their relationship. Divorce is on the table. Separation is on the table. And so for me, we sit and we talk openly, but we also recognize the humanity of this entire thing. We don't just look at all of the clinical definitions. We look for someone as a human being and what they're experiencing. We build this framework of common language to help us make a route for the future. Travis, Is the number one addiction alcohol or is it drugs? 
or is it pornography or is it all of the above? Well, Pat, you know, you got to throw me a little curveball here. It depends on who you ask and what exactly you're talking about. Uh, one of the other ones, huge right now, is media, um, just in general. I mean, people would be horrified if they looked at their phone usage per day. Um, porn usage is a really big one that we're seeing a big spike in. In terms of the drugs specifically, alcohol is still the winner, um, just because, I mean, uh, liquor stores stayed open during the pandemic and everything else. So for chemically speaking, we're seeing alcohol being the winner. Uh, Marijuana is making a huge inroad towards overtaking that. Um, I would say specifically, though, um, pornography is a lot of the silent, uh, problematic uh, behaviors that we see today as well. How does alcohol addiction get started? So alcohol addiction, a vast majority of those that have um, an addiction to alcohol first experienced alcohol in their teenage years. It's one of the interesting patterns that we've seen. And a lot of times it gets hidden over time. So people will engage with groups of friends that also drink. And so it doesn't seem quite like a budding addiction when everyone is doing it. And so people will have this all the way through college and then they'll get outside of college, they'll graduate, and then go, oh, my gosh, I'm addicted. No, you were addicted a long time ago. It's within that pattern. So typically what we see is this slow roll where people either made excuses or they were doing it themselves. And then all of a sudden, one day, they realize just how big of a deal it is. I thought marijuana was the entryway drug. But now, in many cases, it's legal. So what changed? What changed? Well, uh, if there was a war on drugs, the drugs won. And so um, the, it is still sort of a gateway drug. I, I'm not the biggest fan of that term. I think codependency is the gateway drug to addiction. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really grown into something that is just so overwhelming that to – legislate it and try to prosecute it would be an absolute nightmare of a state and national budget. So just to try to break even, it's turned into trying to legislate some little aspects of it, which is not going to work. What do you mean by codependency? What's that? Why is that a big deal? So codependency is based on two different things. One, the roles that we play um, do we give or do we take from relationships? But mostly it's based on what I call triangulation, where there's two people and then a third party or mitigating factor, whether that's um, a child, whether that's uh, an interest, but specifically that third party is intensity, where the two members of a couple only really feel connected when some level of intensity is involved, good or bad. And so from that, it is easy to transition from Intensity keeps us together into a substance keeping us together. My next question is, <clears throat> with this addict who refuses to go or doesn't want to go, uh, does he come into your meetings sulking, silent, defiant, angry, all of the above? <laughs> so sometimes, yes, but I've, I've learned a little workaround that um, I need buy-in for the person that told them to go in the first place. 
and I develop a plan where, you know, the spouse or the partner that has been with them for so long creates healthy boundaries. And I'm not necessarily manipulating an addict. We're just having real-life consequences for their actions. So a lot of them show up saying, well, I either talk to you or I get divorced, so I might as well, you know, sit down on the couch and talk for 50 minutes. I want you to explain to us, Travis, in, in all of your work, where, where does the Lord fit into all this? Well, I can say first and foremost, it's in everything that I do. If you read that book, the cool thing is you can give this to someone who is not a believer and they can buy completely in. If you're a believer and you read the section on a mustard seed being an object lesson, it's not too hard of a leap to make that. Um, For me, it's the compassion and the empathy, but also the accountability that comes with all things. Honoring the marriage covenant is a huge thing for me. You walked in, up in front of a whole bunch of people and in front of God and said, I'm going to make those sacrifices. You jump to Ephesians 5. Well, if Christ loved the church by laying his life down, you should stop drinking. If you know, We also see in the gospel that wonderful point of healing. And all of my clients, if I never tell them that I'm a Christian, I usually tell them at the very end, and none of them are shocked by that point because the love of Jesus should come through you, especially as a therapist, even if the name of Jesus never comes up. Explain to us how Christians get addicted. And do you see as many Christians with addiction issues as as non-believers? So this is a very interesting point of contention. I will say two things. One, the biblical Christian that has consistent values and aligns with Scripture on every account is about 4% of those who say they're Christians in the United States. Okay, so that's one qualifier. The other thing is that for every single Christian that I have ever had in therapy of any kind, their practical theology is terrible. And what I mean by that is they understand the concepts, but how God loves them and how God engages with them and calls them to something greater. I've never met a Christian addict that has a healthy and active practical theology in the way that it applies to them in their lives. Tell me about young people, really young people who start getting addicted. Uh, What goes through your mind? So I have gotten more and more concerned over the years for two reasons. One, vaping is now a gateway drug to kids because you can hide it super easily. I mean, it can be the size of a flash drive. Um, But the two other things that really worry me are marijuana and this drug called fentanyl. So marijuana is so much stronger than it ever has been, and we now know that there's a risk of developing schizophrenia when you would have otherwise not had it because of how potent the marijuana is. For the fentanyl, that scares me deeply because there are not old fentanyl users. There are only young ones because they die, and drug dealers aren't known to be FDA-approved, and so it gets in all of these other things. So a young person takes you know, something that they think is a Xanax, and it has a little bit of fentanyl in it, and someone overdoses, and that wasn't even their drug of choice. So for young people, I've become much more cautious and straightforward with them because their consequences are so much greater than it has been in the past years. What do you mean by um, 
marijuana is so much stronger. How does that happen? So one is selective breeding of the marijuana plants, but two is concentrate. So now you don't even need a joint, per se, to use marijuana. You can get THC um, little uh, compartments that you put in a vape. So you can get the equivalent of a, a massive amount of THC from marijuana in a small little container. And so you can ingest so much more on an exponential level than you ever have been able to before. What do you want uh, listeners to take from this book, particularly those who may be uh, worried about somebody in their family? If you read this book and truly understand it and implement it, you will be able to talk any psychologist under the table about addiction. This is something that will make sense to everyone. There's not these grand ideas that you have to learn for 30 years to understand. From this book, know that there is hope and also that there is unique information and experiences for you. We always talk about how addicts experiences, experience addiction and trauma. This is for you, for the ones that wonder if their story makes sense or if there's really trauma or bad things that have happened. This book is for you to understand yourself. My guest has been Travis Thompson, author of To Those Left Behind. We have more right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Our guest in that first segment, uh, Travis Thompson, uh, talking about his book, To Those Left Behind. He was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, we go from there to Gadsden, Alabama. We found Tori Paris, internationally acclaimed recording artist, author of Love Is Never Lost. Standing strong in faith while grieving. Tori, welcome to Orlando. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's a joy. How did this book come about, Tori? What's the background? Um, the background on this book is pretty sentimental. Um, whenever the world got hit by COVID back in 2020, During the midst of that COVID storm, we had our very own storm that we were dealing with because the same week of the shutdown, my dad was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Mm. And for the listeners that don't know, there is hardly any treatment at all for pancreatic cancer. And my dad, unfortunately, did not qualify for any of the treatment options. And so we we began navigating, you know, what it was going to look like not having him anymore because the doctors only gave us a few weeks. And so I started keeping a journal of all of the moments with my dad, all of the the special family memories. I would jot them down because we honestly didn't know when it would be the last. So I started writing those down. But honestly, ever since I was a little girl, I've kept a prayer journal because I love to look back and see how God had answered my prayers and how he's been faithful through the years. And so that's what this book began as, a combination of my prayer journal and me begging God to save my dad and 
the that coupled with all of the precious memories that we made during those last few weeks. And that's pretty much the first half of the book. And after that, it takes you into really the aftermath of the what happens now and how my family and I tried to navigate navigate that grief journey over the next few months. Tori, in your book, you write this. One day, we will all come face to face with the certainty of our mortality. It's my sincerest hope that by reading the pages of this book, you receive hope for the journey. Can you expand on that? Yes, sir. Um, you know, I, I don't think that anything God puts us through is is lost, right? Every situation, every circumstance, every trial that comes our way, He's using it for His glory in one way or the other. Um, and so if in our pain, in the midst of our suffering, we can find a way to study God's Word, to use the Scriptures to grow closer to Him, to move towards Him rather than away from Him, then I think our grief serves a purpose. Um, and, you know, the chief end of man is just to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so that's, that's what I had to learn to do. And, you know, this, this book is a little different because it comes from the perspective of somebody that's 25 years old. <laughs> and I know that as you grow and as you mature in life, these you know, funerals and things like that, they tend to happen more frequently. But looking at it from the the younger perspective, looking at it from being my age, coming face to face with the certainty that one day we all won't be here, that was really, really difficult for me. Um, And so I just had to learn, I, I had to learn how to trust God and how to press into Him so that all of this suffering wasn't in vain, so that our grief did have a purpose and that it would inevitably bring glory to Him. Tori, talk to us. <clears throat> talk to us about holding on to faith while dealing with loss. <laughs> well, how vulnerable do you want me to be? <laughs> Go for it. Well, there's there's one specific passage in the book where I talk about the day that I realized my dad was not going to get better. And I think everyone who's ever lost someone, there's that turning point where you know it's going to be downhill from here. And that day, I went out into the field beside our house. We have this meadow full of wildflowers. And I went out into the field, and I was so angry at God. I just started screaming at him. I don't know if you've ever been there. But I just started yelling at him because I was so angry. Why was he letting this happen? Why did this have to happen to us? And I kept asking all of these questions. And I was just having my own Job moment out in the middle of this field yelling at God. But as I stood there, my anger slowly turned to adoration. Because at the end of the day, he is God and I'm not. And as much as I wish he would ask me for my opinion, (laughs) he doesn't because he's sovereign and he's just, and he is in control even when we, we don't feel like we are. Um, And so I had to learn to stand strong in my faith, to believe all the scriptures, to believe all of the foundation I've been taught throughout the years. I was so blessed to be born into an incredible family of faith. And, um, you know, I, I just, I'm so thankful for the scriptures that say that we don't grieve like the rest of the world, but we grieve with hope. 
because honestly, without the faith I have in Jesus Christ as my Savior, without the hope of heaven, I don't know how we would have made it through this. Tori Paris, Gadsden, Alabama. Tori, <clears throat> I want you to talk about preparing for a loss. How do you go about doing that? Um, I don't know that there is any good way to prepare, honestly, other than a lot of prayer and a lot of trust in the Lord. For us, it was such a different experience. You know, you have you have those freak accidents that happen. Sometimes people have a heart attack out of the blue. Sometimes people have a car accident, different things like that. But for us, it was more of an anticipatory grief in that we didn't know when the last day would be. We knew it was coming. We knew it was on the horizon, but we didn't know when it would be. And so we just tried our best to cherish every moment, to cherish every last conversation that we could. Um, and when, when readers go through the book, they'll see some of the special things that my dad did, some of the things he did that were so intentional in the moment, and how he had the strength to plan ahead, the strength to do those sweet, intentional things to leave behind for us. I don't know how he did that. Um, but really for us, it was pressing into our faith, pressing into trust in the Lord, and being able to live in the moment, to be able to share those moments with our family and cherish those memories, um, even even if they were hard to look back on to begin with. Now they're some of my most, my most prized memories. A singer, <clears throat> Tori Paris, <clears throat> is our guest. Tori, we'll get back to the book. Uh, talk to us about your um, your recording career and your musical career and how it started and what you're doing. Yeah, so um, I have been touring for over the past decade um, all throughout the nation, been to multiple countries, and I just love Jesus. <laughs> I, I love singing. I love sharing that with others. Um, I released my debut album a couple of years ago, and it debuted at number five on iTunes charts. And I've just, I, I love songwriting. I love worship. I am a scripture junkie, so I love packing scriptures into my songs. And uh, listeners can find those anywhere that music is streamed and sold. It's available on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, all of that fun. Um, but my favorite song I've written is called Trust. And it, uh, it's, a, it's a really special song about, about trusting in God. And um, it was actually written right before we lost my grandmother. And I feel like it's such a testimony to, to our family. And then another song that listeners can hear is called Miracles. And I talk about it in my book as well. Miracles is a song that I wrote for my dad the morning that we went for his biopsy. And so both of those songs are available to be streamed or listened to today as well as some other really fun pop music and some uh, some worship tunes that I've toured with over the past few years. Are songwriters born or made? <laughs> I have heard that question quite a bit. Um, I really think everyone has a songwriter in them. You know when you're a little kid and you play on the playground and you sing silly songs when you're tying your shoes? I think as long as we tap back into that, into that creativity... Um, at some point, we tend to leave that behind. But, you know, first and foremost, in, in Genesis, where we meet God, what is he? He's creating. 
And so I think that whenever we create, whenever we, uh, when we write songs, when we write those hymns of worship, we get to connect with him in such a beautiful way because it's one of the first uh, attributes of his character that we're introduced to in Scripture. And so I really think songwriters are born. I do. I think we all have it. It's just whether, whether you cultivate it as you grow up um, and as you turn into an adult rather than a, a sweet little kid. <laughs> Tori, um, I want to go back to the book, and um, I want some suggestions from you for coping, sure. for coping with grief as well as prayers that, that that help guide us spiritually through the grieving process. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in the book, I do offer, which I'm by no means a therapist. I'm, <laughs> I'm a singer and an attorney, so I'm, I'm not a therapist, but I do know what worked for me. And that was being able to get my thoughts out, being able to journal those things down so that I wasn't holding them in. Um, I tried really hard to to cherish the memories. I tried to consistently look at photos of our family because I didn't want to forget uh, all of the love that we shared. You know, um, <laughs> I think that the harder a loss is, it's just proof and evidence of the greater the love that you had. And so I did all of this, but also throughout the book, there are some prayers that are drafted for you at the end of each chapter Um, just trying to help you navigate through. Uh, For instance, I can read one of them for you. It just says, My dearest Jesus, you are the center of my joy. All that is good and perfect has come from you. All things have their beginning in you, through you, and with you. You are the heart of my contentment, the sole hope and the purpose of all that I do. I thank you for the wildflowers and aspects of your character that they teach us. God, would you help me to find you in every single one? I know that the more I seek you, the more I will find you. And when I am in your presence, there I will find the fullness of joy. My guest uh, is Tori <laughs> Paris in Gadsden, Alabama. We have another segment with us. Stay with us here. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, and this is AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Tori Paris is our guest. Uh, She's in Gadsden, Alabama. The book, Love is Never Lost, Standing Strong in Faith While Grieving. Well, Tori, you dropped a little a little bomb on us when you said an attorney. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. I, I, I need you to go back, Tori, about you growing up. Where did you go to college and law school, and how does all this fit? I, w- I want to learn more. <laughs> so both of my parents are attorneys. Um, my, my dad primarily did corporate law. My mom did some family law for years and years and years. And I, I always wanted to be an attorney when I was a little girl. I would follow my mom to court carrying my hot pink Barbie briefcase that was full of coloring books. <laughs> and I, I always just grew up in the courtroom. I loved it. Um, I went to the University of Mobile, and there I studied how to be a worship leader. I studied music and theology, and I... I love the aspect of worship. So when I started college, I said, you know what? I want 
be the foundation of my life. I want it to be what I build everything else upon. Um, so I did my undergrad at the University of Mobile and studied worship, studied the ministry of the church and, and how to reach people and started working full-time in a church. I went on to Liberty and did my master's in music education mm. there with a concentration in, uh, in how Christian music is used worldwide to reach people. And through working in churches, you know, sometimes I feel like being an attorney and being a pastor are two, two sides of the same coin, because so much of what we do is helping people navigate their difficult situations, the, the troubles that they find themselves in. Um, and that's exactly what a minister does, right? So I then went to Birmingham School of Law and finished up last year, and I'm just finishing my first year of being an attorney, and I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's so much fun. Are you married, single? I, yes, sir, I am. Um, this fall, my husband and I will have been married six years. How about that? Good for you. And what does he do? Uh, my husband tours. Um, he does production for a lot of different concerts and stadiums and arena tours. Um, for a couple of years, he was primarily with David Crowder, uh, the Crowder music. Um, but he now he's just come back off the road from Carrie Job's West Coast tour. So he does a lot of fun stuff like that. Our life is a little crazy. Um, we travel a lot. We we have a blast. That and we have a super cute golden doodle. <laughs> <laughs> Tori Paris is our guest. Love is never lost. Standing strong in faith while grieving. Uh, Tori, what do you remember most about your father? My dad was a teddy bear. <laughs> He was a giant teddy bear. He had the sweetest belly laugh, the most crystal clear blue eyes you've ever seen, and he lit up a room whenever he walked into it. He was always the life of the room, whether it was at church, during um, during choir practice, or during small groups, or out to eat with family, or parties, whatever the case may be. Um, my dad was just so full of joy. In every season, in every situation, he had joy. And I think that's what I remember the most. What's your definition of joy? Well, you know, (laughs) that is actually one of the things that I talk about in the book. You know how recently you've seen a lot of T-shirts and coffee mugs and all of the things that say choose joy? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I think for some people, it's hard to choose joy, right? Because right after we lost my dad, trust me, I wanted nothing but to choose joy. I wanted to be joyful. I just didn't feel like I could be. Um, And so I don't know that it's necessarily a choice we make, but I think that when we shift our perspective heavenward, when we start looking to heaven, when we look to Jesus as being both the author and finisher of our faith, then we see joy. Joy is a perspective that that we, it transforms our life, right? My grandmother used to always say that heaven gets sweeter and sweeter every day, and I never knew what she meant until I started losing people that I loved and cared about. And don't get me wrong, I'm very excited to see Jesus when I get to heaven, but I'm also excited to see my dad and my grandmother and my other family members who have gone on before me in this beautiful legacy. And I think the joy we have in the cross, um, it, 
it just doesn't compare to anything else. I mean, think about Jesus, right? He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. It's not that he enjoyed the cross. It's that the joy in what was set before him, the perspective that he saw that he was coming to redeem us, that we would spend eternity with him, he endured it for that perspective, right? Because he could see it. Um, And so I think that's a lot of how we exist every day. If we can live with that mindset of the joy set before us, the hope that is in heaven, the hope that is in Christ, um, to me, that is that is the utmost joy. How do you envision uh, heaven, Tori? How do I envision heaven? Yeah, when you think oh, of yeah. heaven, what, what comes to your mind? What, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think it's going to be like? <laughs> you know, there's so many people that have different ideas about that. Um, there's a, one of my favorite quotes from Billy Graham is him saying, you know, as soon as we start to imagine what heaven is like, it's going to be even greater than that. I, I don't know. It's like the song, I Can Only Imagine. Do you think it's going to be us surrounding the throne, just worshiping all day, every day? Do you think it's going to be, um, I don't know, a crystal lake with a nice fishing pole and we get to fish all day? Is it going to be flying on the backs of eagles? Is it going to be painting the sky at the evening every day? I don't know. I don't know. But whatever it is, I know it's going to be far beyond our wildest dreams. My guest, and uh, she's a delight. I've never met Tori Paris, but uh, she's delightful. What do you want people to take from this book, Tori? I really want people to take away from this book that they're not alone. So many times when people are grieving and they're in pain, they feel like they're going through it all by themselves. But the truth is, number one, there's a lot of people out there that are grieving. And if you, if you find someone you can talk to, it is so helpful. But not just that, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there as your comforter. Jesus left us so that the comforter could come, right? He went back to heaven so that he could send the comforter who would be closer to us than a brother. And the Holy Spirit does such a beautiful healing work within all of our hearts. So if if someone is struggling today, if for all of you listeners, if you, no matter what your situation is, maybe you haven't lost someone, but you've been struggling with fear or anxiety or depression, I promise you, the Holy Spirit is with you. God is for you. He has not left your side. He is right there with you in the midst of your circumstance. All you have to do is whisper the name of Jesus because there's healing in his name. There's forgiveness in his name. There's power in his name. And you can get joy back in his name because he is the most beautiful name that ever has been and ever will be. Tori, I want you to tell us more about your thoughts on the Holy Spirit and why it can be so confusing to people? Ooh, that's a deep question. (laughs) Um, I just think that the Holy Spirit is so precious in that God has given us the ability to, to approach the throne directly. You know, the ancient Israelites didn't have that opportunity. They had to go through a priest. They had to go through all of these rituals and all these sacrifices in the temple before they could ever even come into the Holy of Holies, right? There were so many protocols that they had to do. But when the veil was torn, 
the Holy Spirit came to us so that we have that intimate relationship with Jesus. You know, I talk to him throughout the day. Uh, in First Thessalonians, it tells us to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It means that we make him a part of our day, that we communicate with him regularly. Um, you know, sometimes I'm just passing by a flower bush and I'm like, oh, good job, Jesus. That looks nice. You know, <laughs> if I see a pretty rose bush or something. But even as elementary as that is, just having that one-on-one conversation with him. There were generations of people that desired to have that connection with God, but they weren't allowed to yet. And now we have this freedom that we can communicate directly with the throne room. We can plead and intercede uh, all day long if we want to. And I think that's such a joy. And I also think that's something that people take for granted a lot, is that we have the opportunity to directly go before the King and to ask Him what we need. And when we do, He meets us right where we are. Tori Paris has done a marvelous job with this book. Tori, what's next for you? What's on your checklist? Um, well, next on my checklist today is I have court in a few hours that I'm about to get ready for. <laughs> um, Good for but you. Ne- <laughs> but next on my checklist, um, I don't know what's in store just yet. I've had a lot of folks recently asking me if I'm going to write another book. Um, this one was pretty difficult to dig into. It was a lot of soul searching. Um, so much digging deep is in this book. For anybody who reads it, it's so raw <laughs> and vulnerable. And so um, I, I don't know what is next on the horizon, but I know that I'm excited for it. And I think that's so beautiful as to how God plans our lives, right? He's the light unto our path. He just shows us the next step one at a time. And we just follow after him. So I'm ready for what all he has in store, whether it's another album, another book, um, another travel somewhere. I don't know. But whatever it is, I'm so excited for the journey because he's never let me down before. Tori Paris has been our guest, internationally acclaimed recording artist, author of Love is Never Lost, standing strong in faith while grieving. It's quite a read, folks. And Tori has been a a marvelous guest. Well, I just want to remind you that uh, you've been listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather every weekend like this. Right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.